there are weeks where I start my routine on Monday and I look at the text for the week and begin the process of praying through that and thinking about what I might preach, what the Lord might have me say. And there, there are weeks where I do that and I'm immediately thrilled in my heart. I connect with the text. I'm excited. I can't wait to get to this gathering so that I can preach and share and, and think with you through the passage. That is not every week. That does not always happen. Sometimes it is more difficult. And I will open a text and I, I will not immediately connect to it. And I will struggle with exactly like, Lord, how does this apply to us? What are, what are the people of Agape to learn from this? What am I to learn from this? The Lord has always been kind to me that he allows that connection to happen. I cannot remember a single time that I've ever preached that I, I did not have from the Lord a sense of this is his message for us. Sometimes it just takes longer. Sometimes it's not Monday. Sometimes it's 1215 on Saturday evening pacing and praying in my driveway, which was the case this week. Paul addresses bond servants. He has been, if you've been following along throughout Colossians, and if you've been reading through Colossians as we have gone in this um, series, and I hope that you have been doing that, back at the beginning of what we call chapter 3, but it was just this next section of the letter when the church in Colossae received it, he is, he's told the church, okay, if then you have been raised with Christ... If you have died, then I want you to remember your life. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And he goes through this teaching that you've been crucified. You These principles that he teaches in other letters in the New Testament. You, you've died to yourself. And now you live to Christ. You need the mind of Christ. You need the will of Christ. You are the body of Christ, so you're going to do the things that Christ does. Your life is going to be radically different. And so then he has begun this part of the letter where he's applying that to different relationships because the gospel speaks into all of our circumstances and the gospel speaks into every relationship we have. So he started with the church. Forgive one another. I'm writing to you, Colossae, and... I am writing to the church of Agape in Pinson, Alabama in 2023. Forgive one another. Put on love, he says in verse 14, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Relationships are all about words and deeds. The relationships we have, they are helped or hurt by the things we say and the things we do. And so Paul draws this line and he says, whatever you say, let it be worthy of Jesus. Whatever you do, let it be worthy of Jesus. That is your calling now because your life is with Him. And then he narrows the focus even more. He goes into Christian households. He says, husbands, you're not free to just... Be the husband that you think in a worldly way you should be. You must now be influenced by the gospel and you are to love your wife and treat her the way that Christ loves and treats you. And if you see in your life where you are harsh and where you are not loving her in word and deed, the way that you are called to, you must repent. Wives, you are to submit to your husband. You are to honor them and show them respect as the person who's been given spiritual leadership in the home. You are to submit to your husband the way the church submits to Jesus. You're to honor him that way. That's your role as a Christian. Children, obey your parents. Parents, love your children. Don't be harsh with them. Fathers, don't provoke your children through harshness in your parenting. He's speaking this transformative gospel and applying it into the household, which was made up of husbands and wives and children and parents and 
young children, but also in many of these households, probably older children who may have gotten married and their whole family, they lived together. Many of these households were very large and within these households, there were in many of them bond servants. They were part of the home. They lived among the family. So it is it's why Paul's addressing it. It's not just this odd thing he throws in there. He's speaking to Christian homes. And within many of these Christian homes, there were bondservants. And these husbands and these fathers were also masters over those bondservants. Some scholars estimate that a third of the population of Colossae at this time were bondservants. It was a huge part of their society and their economy. The ESV uses the word bondservant where many other translations use the more common word slave. The ESV translators, if you read the preface to the ESV, they actually explain why they did that. And part of it is because this institution of bondservant Bond servitude in first century and in Rome was a little complicated. Our mind, when we hear slavery, immediately goes to the atrocities of the 19th century in America, based primarily on race and sourced in human trafficking. And it is true that there are some very, very, very big distinctions between what we're familiar with in terms of slavery and what was happening in the first century. Some of these bond servants had volunteered for this life or sold themselves into this life because they owed a debt. And so they would just say, well, I will come and live with you and I will serve in your home and I will do what you need me to do and I'll pay my debt off and I'll earn my freedom. And it was a big part of, as I said, the economy of the day. And so what will sometimes happen then is we, in our 2023 thinking, we will liken this bond servitude to modern-day employment, employers and employees, and then we'll teach the text based on that. I do think there are principles that we can learn from this text when it comes to being a good employee, being a good employer. If you look at what Clay just read in, in verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily. And by the way, that's not talking about effort. It literally means from the soul. So work with sincerity, work with your heart, as for the Lord, not for men. So if you take that verse and you rightly apply it absolutely to any work you do, whether that work is in your home doing chores or maintaining your home or whether that work is in a business or whether you are working in an organization, whatever work you do, work from your heart knowing that you're serving the Lord and not men. And so yes, you can rightly apply that. But there are big differences between first century bond servitude, slavery, and modern day employment. The reality is these bond servants, most of them, they didn't control their life. It was controlled by someone else. They were, in essence, property. Although, again... They had varying degrees of freedom, and that's what makes it so hard. Some bond servants owned their own property and, and had a lot of freedom to come and go in the home, but others did not. And some of these bond servants weren't there because they had sold themselves into debt. Some of them were there as probably being captured in battles or wars. So it's a complicated situation, and it's not solved by us just applying it to employers and employees. Paul addresses these servants, these bond servants, these slaves, and he addresses the masters. He gives them instructions. And the reality is some people take that and say, Paul was condoning slavery. They then take that and say, the Bible condones slavery. And then they take that and say, God condones slavery. And that is entirely unfair because nowhere does Paul approve of slavery. As a matter of fact, I will say nowhere does the Bible 
approve of that or set it up. So why does Paul address them? Because it was a reality they lived in. We want to say in 2023, well, the right and moral and good thing to have done was Paul to say, set them all free. There should be no slavery. And I'm going to try and make a point here in, to you in a moment that I absolutely believe the gospel has worked in the history of nations to undermine slavery and to bring it to an end. But I'm also going to ask you to go on a journey with me for a few moments in which we see that there was something greater at stake than just earthly freedom. Paul is speaking into a reality that was prevalent in that culture. He was speaking into something that was a huge part of the economy of that day. He was speaking into the reality of these men and women in their lives. And he was saying, the gospel touches everything. The gospel transforms you in everything. The gospel changes who you are, whether you're in a good circumstance or a bad circumstance. The gospel informs how you live to your friends and how you live to your enemies. The gospel informs everything. And I think that if we will approach the text that way, not reading into it something that is not there, but trying to understand this big picture ramification of the gospel and its transformative effects on people and circumstances, I believe we will get the most out of these few verses and what it means for us today. So we're going to go on this journey. I do so with fear and trembling. I'm going to ask the Lord to help us. Help me to speak. Help us to hear. Father, I thank you for this gathering. I thank you for these men and women and children that make up the church of Agape. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for its power, its anointing, its effect on our lives. I ask, dear Lord, that you would help us as we journey through your word this morning. I pray that you would help me to speak rightly without causing confusion or harm, that you would guard my mouth to not say anything that is not of you. Because I am helpless to do this without you. This is pointless without your spirit. I ask to preach in Christ. Also ask that you would give us ears to hear. That we would come to your word with meekness to receive it. Not to immediately argue with it. Not to challenge it with our own ideals. But to listen to you and what you have to say to us. That we might be changed, that the word might grow in us and we might bear much fruit. As a church, as Christians, as homes, households of God, that we might become the light of Christ, shining brighter and brighter and brighter. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're a note taker, if you want to grab out your worship guide and, and then a Bible, because so we're going to bounce around to several different passages today, so I hope you have a copy of God's Word. If you don't, there are some free copies on the back table that we would love to give to you um, today. So, freedom in Jesus. Hear and believe this message. I implore you, hear and believe this message. Jesus entered His creation that by His life, His death, and His resurrection, He would set me free. That's what I want you to write there, that He would set me free. I want you to personalize it. If you would, even circle me in the center. That is the message that I am asking, that I believe the Bible asks, implores us to believe. Jesus Christ 
in whom the Father has created all things, stepped into His creation for the purpose of living a perfect life, dying a sinner's death on our behalf, being resurrected from the dead, proclaiming victory over sin and death, and He offers to us freedom. I want to start there before we ever get to Colossians 4. Colossians 3 and 4, I want us to start there. This is what Christ has done for us. Luke chapter 4. It's one of my favorite pictures in the Gospels of Jesus. I have have played this out in my mind so many times, just picturing what it must have been like. Jesus enters into the synagogue in Nazareth in His hometown where He'd been brought up. And as was His custom, in verse 16 of Luke 4, it says He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And as an invited, maybe an invited guest or an honored guest, He was asked to read, which was customary in the synagogue, in these Jewish churches, if you will. He stood up to read and He asked for the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It was given to him. He unscrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written that he was looking for. And this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled the scroll, he gave it to the attendant, and he sat down. And then it says that all of the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. So I picture him going to be seated, and everybody is still fixated on Jesus. They're still staring at Jesus. They had heard God read his word. And Jesus looked at them and said, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was proclaiming the day of the Messiah is here. I am he. The one who will proclaim liberty to the captives. That's freedom, church. And will set at liberty those who are oppressed. That is liberty as well, church. Jesus has come for our freedom. Now the question is, what did He come to set us free from? What freedom does He offer? He is quoting Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 61. So in your Bible, if you will, go there because I want you to see something very interesting. Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2 is what Jesus is quoting and reading to the church to the synagogue, to the Jewish synagogue in that day. Now, look at Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Did you notice something? Jesus didn't read the entire quote. Jesus stopped at to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He didn't finish the verse, which included the day of the vengeance of our God. Why did Jesus not quote it all when he said today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing? Because when Isaiah was looking forward into the future, to the coming Messiah who he was writing about, under the inspiration of the Spirit, to him in this faraway distance, he sees one act of the Messiah, declaring the favor of the Lord and freedom to the captives and vengeance of God. And what Isaiah couldn't see is there's a gap between the proclamation of the favor of God and the vengeance of God. And church, we are living in that gap. That's where we live today. Jesus has come to proclaim freedom, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim today, right now, this is the time 
to experience the favor of God. This is the time right now that you are in. When you hear this message, this is the moment. This is the season. This is the day to experience His favor. That moment will not always be there. Because what is coming is the day of God's vengeance against sin. If you'll jump back to the New Testament for a moment to John 12. All these references are in your worship guide. But John 12, verse 47 and 48. Jesus, during His ministry, says this, If anyone hears My words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Sounds like pretty good news so far. Alright, so I can hear the message. Not obey it. I'm not judged. Because you didn't come to judge. came to save. Sounds good. Verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words does have a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus says the same thing. We're living in the gap. Jesus did not come to the earth the first time to judge the world. He came to save it. He came to set people free. From what? Sin. And death. And if you hear this message and you reject it, you are not yet under God's judgment. Because Jesus hasn't come to do that. But on the last day, the words of Jesus will judge you because you will have heard the message and you will have said no. You will have heard the message to be saved. You will have heard the message that you can be forgiven of your sins. You will have heard the message that Jesus will set you free. And you have said I don't receive that. You may have said, no, I don't receive that because in your mind, I'll do that later. Or it's going to cost me too much. Or I really don't know that I, I, I truly believe what's being said. Or I'm good how I am. Whatever reason, you have said no. And on that day, when Jesus returns the second time, He will judge the world. And everyone who heard the message in their lifetime and rejected it, they will be judged. I said to you that you're not yet under the judgment of God. and It's not entirely theologically true. If we're not saved, we do sit under the shadow of the judgment of God. But as long as we're living, we have the opportunity to receive the message. But we are but dust. And none of us know when that moment will come that we will step into eternity. And when that happens, that gap for us between the proclamation of the favor of God and the judgment of God is gone. And the opportunity to receive the message of Jesus and be saved is gone as well. So we should hear this message and believe with urgency Christ has come to set you free. I want you to feel the weight of everything that I just said because this right now is not about being debt free. This right now is not about having prosperous lives. This right now is not about being set free from difficult marriages. This right now is not being about, is not about being set free from a hard job or a difficult boss. Or rebellious employees. This is the weight of eternity. Freedom from judgment and death. With the opportunity to live forever in joy in the presence of God. Seeing Christ face to face and enjoying righteousness. That is the freedom that He has come to offer. One more passage, Romans chapter 6. 
and I'll give you the the blanks here in, in your notes. What we're talking about is freedom from obedience to sin so that you can love to obey God. Freedom from obedience to sin so that you can love to obey God. And freedom from judgment that is the result of obedience to sin. That's the freedom that Christ has come to proclaim to us. Freedom from obedience to sin so that you can love to obey God and freedom from judgment if you want to, and I would write above judgment, death, because they go together. Freedom from judgment and death that is the result of obedience to sin. And that, to me, is a summary of Romans 6. I'm going to read these passages to us. Just listen. I don't have time to talk about all of them. But Paul says, what then? Are we to sin as believers because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. So he's saying, no, your grace and your forgiveness of sin is not there so you can sin more. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either you're obeying sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to righteousness. One of the two. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, look at this, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were commanded. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Paul is saying one way to live is you just daily present your body to sin. You present your thoughts to sin. You present your mouth to sin. You present your fingers and your arms and your feet to sin. I'm going to obey sin. I'm going to do what sin wants. And Paul says, if you're a believer, you are free of that. Don't live that way. Anyone who doesn't have Christ, they're enslaved to that. They can't do anything else. But you, you have turned. You are in Christ. So this means now your thoughts make them obedient to Jesus. Your heart, make it obedient to Jesus. Your fingers, your your, your feet, your arms, all of it. Present it to God to serve Him and obey Him. That's what freedom is. For just as you once presented your members, the members of your body, as slaves to impurity, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Unbelievers can't do this for long. They can present themselves to God momentarily, maybe when they get frightened or they get they find themselves guilty, feeling guilty for doing wrong things, and they'll shape up for a little bit. But they will eventually fall right back into it because they are slaves to sin. Those of us who are in Christ will struggle with flesh. That's what sanctification means. It's a process that God is working in our life. But we will have the freedom to pursue righteousness and grow in it and not turn back. That is the freedom that Christ has come to give us. That you can love to obey God, not begrudgingly. Jesus said in the New Testament that you would love the commands of God, not find them burdensome. That you don't, your life becomes not just going, oh, I gotta do this, I gotta obey. But you, no, you, you begin to love God's way. Love to think like Christ. Love to honor Christ even when it means sacrifice. I love the words of that song that we sang earlier that Kellen was leading. It's the first time I've heard that song, but it talked about in the song. If, if, if To get to resurrection life means death. I'm going to hang on the cross next to you because I need to die. But we do that and say, yes, this is good. That my flesh dies. That's the freedom. That's the freedom that Christ has come for. So, how does that inform now what we read in Colossians 4? How does that inform how we think about freedom in earthly, in our earthly lives? In your notes... My encouragement is it should bring us to a place where we hope in salvation. We hope in what Christ has done. In your notes, 
You live right now in the already but not yet. That's not my quote. That's how theologians explain this gap. Christ has come to proclaim favor from God. Judgment has not yet come upon the earth and people. We live in the gap. In the gap, as believers, you live in the already but not yet. You are free in Christ already. But the totality of that freedom you have not yet experienced entirely. You are being sanctified. You are being changed. You are being molded. You are rising above the things of this world. And one day you will step into complete freedom. Not to be your own God, which is how we think about freedom. But to love and serve God for eternity without any hindrances. You live in the already but not yet, which means on this earth, you are still going to experience earthly bondage and enslavement. You are going to find yourself in difficult circumstances and situations. You are going to feel enslaved at times to things in this earth. So how do you approach that? What I'm case I'm making to you is in your notes, your freedom from sin and judgment is your assurance of freedom from every earthly enslavement. And maybe what I should have put there, and if you want to write it in, is your assurance of eventual freedom from every earthly enslavement. Here's how I want you to think about this church. If the greatest enslavement you have ever experienced is sin and its resulting judgment, and Christ has set you free from that, every other enslavement you experience on earth is a lesser enslavement, and therefore, if He has freed you from the greatest enslavement that you will ever experience, then absolutely He will set you free from everything else. That's your assurance. He has not withheld from you salvation of your soul. He has not withheld from you releasing you from sin. And it's judgment. So you can look at the enslavements that you face on the earth and you can know freedom is coming even in these. 1 Corinthians 15, we won't turn there, but it talks about how Jesus is putting His enemies under His feet. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. We live in the already but not yet. Christ has declared freedom, but Christ is actively now putting all His enemies under His feet. And the last one He will destroy is death. One day, Jesus will kill death. Right now, we still have to deal with that. We still have to deal with the destruction that sin brings. But what we do is we hope in our salvation. Christ has come to set me free. He is putting His enemies under His feet. Death will be defeated and I will be free. So, what I want you to think about in terms of Christian freedom, in terms of being set free, is this in your notes. In this life, we will be delivered from harsh circumstances and we will be transformed in harsh circumstances. You will experience both in this life. Church, if your expectation is that Christ will deliver you from every harsh circumstance, at some point you will become disillusioned with the God you have created and you will walk away from Him. Because not every harsh circumstance will He deliver you from. Some of them, He is going to transform you in it. 
Now, on the other hand, if you assume that every harsh circumstance you are in is simply placed there by the sovereignty of God not for you to escape from, you may fall into the trap of never asking for freedom. And you may not have freedom because you don't ask for it. The reality is both will be true of the Christian. He will deliver you from harsh circumstances and He will transform you in harsh circumstances. I want you to see in these instructions in Colossians 3, I want you to see the seeds of freedom that are being planted. Because they're there. Now he gives these instructions to slaves and masters. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. So here's a new instruction that I'm giving you as a Christian who finds himself in servitude. Obey, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. In other words, he says, don't just do the right thing and serve and work when people are watching you so they can think highly of you, but in your heart you begrudge them and you hate them. No, fight for sincerity in your heart to work in a way in which you want to honor Christ and help the people that you're working for. You want to serve them the way Christ has served you. That is the transformative impact of the gospel on the bondservant. And then he gives this kind of global picture. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And so yes, that's a global application. Christian, Whatever you do, if you are taking the trash out, if you are working at your business, if you are serving in an organization, if you're playing on the worship team, if you're preaching, if you're sharing the gospel, whatever you're working at, work from your soul. Don't just be pleased with going through the motions so people will think highly of you. Seek to work with sincerity from your heart. Have this mindset. I'm not doing this for this person. I'm ultimately doing this for Jesus. To honor Him. To glorify Him. Do this knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Bond servants. Slaves. Yes, you may be in a situation that you put yourself in. You may be in a situation that you hate. But no, an inheritance is coming for you. So look to that. Trust in that. You are serving the Lord. Verse 25, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there's no partiality. This could be the wrongdoing servant. Slave who is not doing his work well, this could be the wrongdoing master who is harsh and unloving and unkind to his slave. The wrongdoers will be paid back. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Masters, be kind to them. Treat them with justice. Be fair to them. You have a master in heaven that will keep you accountable for these things. Now, these are the instructions. How, where are the seeds of freedom that I'm telling you I feel are being sown here? Number one, Paul addresses the slaves, which means what? His expectation was when this letter got delivered to Colossae and was read to the church, they were there. They might be a servant in the home, but when the body of Christ was gathered, they were there. They were part of the church. They were receiving these same instructions that everyone else was receiving. Because within the church was the equality of salvation 
in the gospel. He tells them they have an inheritance to come. Slaves didn't receive that kind of message. That you have an inheritance coming. This showed that they were being brought up, lifted out of their place. Even in the culture, if they were mistreated and abused and had nothing, Paul said, you have an inheritance coming in Christ. And he levels the ground between the master and the servant because he tells the master, you have a master in heaven that you're responsible for. Or you're responsible to. And he's already told the servant, you have a master in heaven the Lord Jesus Christ. He's telling the masters and the servants in the church, you have the same master. In this society and in this situation that you're in, there may be, one of you may be subordinate to the other, but in the church, you're on level ground and equal ground and you have the same master. This is the kind of thinking that would ultimately undo the institution of slavery in many parts of the world. And I will say it even was doing it in that day. I'll remind you of what I said at the beginning of this series. Colossians was written probably at the same time that Paul wrote another letter called Philemon. He wrote this letter to Philemon. Philemon lived in Colossae. He was a wealthy landowner and he had servants. He had slaves. One of his slaves had harmed him in some way. Stolen from him, maybe robbed him and fled. Onesimus. Onesimus, in the sovereignty of God, had come under the influence of Paul and had been saved. He had come to know Jesus. And so Paul tells Onesimus, you've got to go back and make this right. You've wronged your master. The gospel calls for you to go back to your Christian master and make this right. But Paul says, I'm not going to send you alone. I'm going to send you with a letter. And so he writes the letter to Philemon. And the instruction that Paul gives to Philemon is, I want you to receive Onesimus not simply as your servant, not simply as your servant who wronged you. Receive him as your brother in Christ. And if he owes you anything, I'll pay for it. Don't punish him. Forgive him. Receive him as a brother. And then Paul says, Philemon, I expect you'll do this and I expect you'll do even more. And what many people believe there is the illusion Paul was making is, I expect you will set him free so he can serve me in the gospel because he has said Onesimus is, has become this incredible brother to me. And we can't know for sure but there are some church historians that believe Onesimus was released and became a leader in the church, even in the church in Ephesus. So I say that to you to say the seeds of freedom were being sown in Colossae, in the lives of these slaves, even as the gospel was being preached. And so I bring this to you. The freedom in Christ and the transformative nature of the gospel was coming to bear on the church in Colossae. And it was transforming how husbands lived and wives lived and children lived and church members lived and household servants lived and how their masters lived. And it was changing it, even leading to their freedom, their earthly freedom, which may take time, may not happen instantaneously. So how about you and I? Here's my question to you. Right now in your life, where do you feel trapped? What do you feel enslaved to? What do you feel like you don't have freedom from? Maybe it is a sin, temptation that you have fought and wrestled and fought and wrestled and it's just like I don't I'm not seeing the breakthrough that I want. Maybe it is financial debt 
Maybe it is a job that you hate. A boss that is mean to you. Maybe it is a marriage that is struggling. I implore you to believe that when you feel enslaved in a troubled marriage, that freedom for the Christian does not equal removal from the marriage. The promise of freedom in a troubled marriage is not release from the marriage, it is transformation in the marriage. Because you've made a covenant. But where do you feel enslaved? Maybe it's to anxiety and fear. And what I want you to see is that the greatest problem you've ever had, the thing that you have been enslaved to, that carried the most weight, that was the most powerful master. Christ has set you free from. If you are in Christ, you do not have to fear judgment. You will never be judged for your sins. You will give an account of your life. You will give an account for how you have lived in Christ, but you will not stand before God in judgment. Because Christ has done that on your behalf. You are free from that. You are free from the fear of judgment. And if He has set you free from that, then there is no earthly bond that He will not eventually set you free from. What I can't tell you is exactly when that freedom will come, or if it will come in its entirety before you see Jesus. On that day, you will be free. But in this life, freedom may come over time. He may deliver you from the circumstance, or He may transform you in it. But freedom is coming. So how do we, what do we take away from this? put a life truth in your handout, but I put next to it takeaways for the believer because that's how I want you to think about it. What do I need to walk away from? Number one, ask God often for the freedom you long for. Ask Him. I've already quoted this once, but James 4.2 says, some things you will not have because you do not ask. Luke chapter 18, verse 1 through 8. Jesus says, I'm going to tell my disciples a parable because I don't want them to lose heart and give up. And then the parable that he tells is the persistent widow who keeps going to the godless judge, banging on the door, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. And in the parable, the judge says, I don't fear God, I don't care anything about this woman, but she's wearing me out, so I'm going to give her what she asked for. Jesus used that as an illustration to pray. Not that you wear God out until He finally gives in, but you should take heart. If a godless judge will give justice to a persistent widow, how much will my godly, loving Father in heaven give justice to me when I ask for it day and night? Ask and don't give up asking. Whatever the freedom is that you are longing for, ask Him for it. Unless you have a Paul moment where He says, stop asking, keep asking. Don't give up. Don't just say, well, I've, I've prayed about that for a month or six months or two years. Keep going. Keep asking for breakthrough, for freedom. Hope in Christ. Freedom will come because you have the assurance of freedom. And until then, fight the good fight of faith while you wait. Until that moment, fight the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy 6 is a direct quote. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, 
Paul says to Timothy, his young protege, but as for you, a man of God, flee these things. He's been talking about all types of evil and wickedness. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. While you wait for freedom, fight the fight of faith. While you're in the job you can't stand, while you're dealing with the anxiety that you want to go away, while you're struggling with temptation, while your marriage needs a lot of work and help, while you're unhappy, while you're struggling with depression and fighting for joy, while you're sinking in debt, pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. Seek to have more faith. Seek to love God and people more. Seek steadfastness. Try to be more gentle. Fight the fight of faith while you wait. Some people give up in their fight. Some people never ask God for freedom. Some people ask God for freedom and it doesn't come right away. And they assume God won't give it. So they stop asking. And some of them, they become disillusioned with God and some of them, they'll walk away from it. Fight the fight of faith. Ask for freedom. Wait with faith. Freedom is coming. Whether you're enslaved in a circumstance that you hate, or struggling with a sin, or a person, fight the fight of faith. Look to Christ. Don't give up. He has set you free from sin. He will set you free from everything. Believe that.